I can't tell you how much uh, it encourages my heart to, to see you here, especially for those men with wives that are at the retreat. I know, uh, I know your struggle as I see Nate over there with baby one strapped on and babies next to him. Um, Jess left me with a comprehensive plan for food and bedtime and all those things. And um, we did Cold Stone before dinner last night. We stayed up all night. So um, my intention was to fulfill the list, but it's just hard, man. I'm so thankful for my wife, as I'm sure you're thankful for, for yours. And ladies, if you missed this time around, uh, we'd love for you to go next year. I've heard so many great things about uh, the women's retreat already as they've been um, studying in the book of Psalms and talking about lament last night and just really enjoying their time together, the fellowship, the music, the teaching of the word. I know it's been an encouragement to at least my wife's heart, and I've heard um, stories of it being an encouragement to the other ladies as well. Well, why don't you take your Bibles and open up to uh, the book of Job. Uh, If you use the Pew Bible there, it's on page 417. Um, You want to just turn to the middle of the book. And if you see Psalms or Proverbs, you want to go to the left. Job is the first of the five wisdom books. And we started there last week in Job 1. We'll be in Job chapter 2 this morning. Well, the ladies, they, uh, they are studying um, lament psalms. You can go to psalms for all kinds of sweet aspects of God, his character, his nature. In fact, when we think about certain books of the Bible, there's places to go when we want to learn certain things about God. If you want to learn about the life of Christ, you go to the Gospels. If you want to learn about the start of the church, the beginnings of the church, then you go to the book of Acts. If you want to learn about the righteousness of God, you'd go to the book of Romans. If you want to know about the church and its structure and its order and its need for unity, you go to Corinthians. How we're justified, Galatians. You talk about Ephesians and you have the glory of God and the way he deals with the church. And then we studied the book of Philippians and the book of Philippians is all about Jesus Christ and the beauty of the gospel and the joy that the gospel brings. The question is, well, where do you go when you want to learn about suffering? You say, well, Why would I want to learn about suffering? Well, if you were here last week, or if you listened to last week's message, you realize that suffering is a part of life. You want to learn about suffering because you will suffer. If you're not suffering now, then suffering will come at some point. Many of you have experienced all kinds of suffering in this world. And so we need to know where to go to learn about suffering. And so most would say, well, Job is the perfect book to go to to learn about suffering. And I would say that is true. And yet it's only the partial truth because we don't just go to Job to learn about suffering. And we don't go to Job to learn about how to solve this problem of evil. The book of Job is really all about the character and nature of God. And so we turn to Job to learn more about God himself. We turn to Job, yes, to learn about perseverance in the midst of trial. We turn to Job because we can learn a lot about how to endure under trial. And we certainly can go to Job to build up a defense, an apologetic about the questions and the problem of evil in the world. All that is true. 
But more importantly, we turn to Job because we want to know God better. We want to know how God thinks and how God acts and how God plans. You see, God gave us the book of Job as a great a grace gift. This book is of infinite value and it has helped the people of God for millennium. So what you have in your hand is 42 chapters of gold, the book of Job. In it, we get a tiny glimpse of Yahweh's wonderful and wise plan to glorify himself and to satisfy each and every one of us, even in the midst of suffering. So, we're doing Job 1 and 2. We might come back to Job 3, but then we'll probably stop at Job. And I would encourage you, read the whole thing. Read the entire book. Some people just read chapter 1 and 2, and then they get to the end of the chapters, and they read that, and they don't read anything in between. But I would say that this is pure gold, and you would do well to spend your time reading the entire book. Last week, we learned that Job's life got turned upside down. He suffered terrible loss there in chapter 1, all in one day. Think back to chapter 1, when he loses all of his finances, all of his fame is gone, as well as his family. Now, as we open up to chapter 2 this morning, it doesn't get any better. In fact, it gets worse. In chapter 1, he lost his possessions and the people he loved. But here in chapter 2, Job actually loses a piece of himself. Satan attacks Job's very person. And this calculated attack is once again aimed at getting Job to curse God. That is Satan's focus. He is giving all of his energy to that main objective, to get Job to curse God. And to ensure, at least in his mind, that Job is going to falter in unbelief, he tempts him with a loss of health, with a lousy helpmate, and what I'm going to say is some lame homies. Loss of health, lousy helpmate, and some lame friends. So let's discover Job 2, but let's go to the Lord and ask for his guidance as we study together. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for another opportunity to gather as your church, and we confess our need. We are needy, dependent, and desperate people, so would you please come by the power of your Spirit, enlighten, illumine our minds and our eyes and our hearts to behold wonderful things from Job chapter 2. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our main idea um, is no surprise. It's the same main idea as we saw last week. So let me uh, remind you of what the main idea was. In the midst of our suffering, we need the eyes of faith to see that God is our sovereign, sympathetic, and sufficient Savior who alone can satisfy our souls. Let me read that again. In the midst of our suffering, we need the eyes of faith to see that God is our sovereign, sympathetic, and sufficient Savior who alone can satisfy our souls. And we're going to move through this chapter on four major headings. Here's our outline. We'll look at the second standoff. Chapter 2 is a second standoff between 
God and Satan. And then we'll look at Satan as he says, skin for skin, and develop what that means. Then we'll see Satan's smite in verses 7 and 8. And then we'll look at the sad sympathy in 9 through 13. The second standoff, skin for skin, Satan's smite, and sad sympathy. But let's uh, just remember the context and uh, think back to chapter 1. Chapter 2 is the fourth scene. There's three scenes that happen before we get to chapter 2. And in the first scene, we have the narrator giving us this idyllic picture of the perfect man with the perfect family. Job was, the Bible says, blameless and upright. He was fearing God and turning away from evil. And it seems like as a result of that, everything was blessed. His finances were blessed. His fame was the best in the world at the time. And his family, again, a perfect picture of what a family should be. Then in Job, um, we have the second scene. It switches from heaven or earth to heaven. The sons of God come before the heavenly courtroom, and Satan is now summoned. He's standing before all the sons of God, but it's important to note that as Satan comes, he's ordered to come. He's summoned to come. Satan is not working here on his own initiative, and God says, well, where have you come from? And Satan's response is, well, I've been roaming the earth. He's, He's... roaming the earth, seeking to cause havoc and destroy God's people. And it's at this time that God initiates a challenge. He's the one that brings up Job. Have you considered my servant Job? And if there's anything that Satan hates, it's he hates people who are righteous and upright and blameless and people who fear God and who turn away from evil. And so Satan says in chapter 1, verse 9, does Job fear God without cause? And let me suggest to you that that question right there is really the big question of the book. Does Job fear God without cause? That word cause or Without cause in Hebrew is hinam. It means for free, for nothing. And the insidious insinuation is that the only reason that Job obeys God and worships God and delights in God is because God does something for him. Because God blesses him in return. That is what Satan is getting at. He is insinuating not just this against Job, but against God. The only reason why you have followers, the only reason why people worship you is because you give them good things. You bless them materially. You make them happy. And it is because of those things that Job worships you. But don't give them any bennies. Take away your gifts and then see if he worships you and then see if he still loves you. That's what Satan is getting at here. And so in chapter 1 and verse 12, it says that Yahweh said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only do not send forth your hand toward him. See, God allows Satan to take away 
all of Job's possessions, but not to harm his person. And in the third scene, that's what Satan does, exactly. In one day, Job loses everything. And here we see the moment that Satan's been waiting for. Now that he's stripped everything away from Job, finally, I am going to get this guy to say, curse God and die. But we learned last week, rather than cursing God, what does Job do? He falls down. He's destroyed. But he worships God. He worships God. And he says in verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. And we learn that through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he give offense to God. So what's the heavenly scoreboard say? God won, Satan zero. Now we flip on over to chapter 2. And we might be tempted to think, okay, here comes Satan again with more in his bag. Now he's going to come with everything he's got to even the score. But I want to remind you, who is the one that summons Satan back into his courts? It is God. God is the initiator, the sovereign behind this whole scenario. And it is him who brings Satan back and says, no, 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 I'm not done yet. God is out to prove something significant that we wouldn't have understood otherwise. And so we must see God's sovereign ordaining in all of this showdown. So let's look at the second standoff here in verse 1 of chapter 2. Again, it was the day that the sons of God came to stand before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them to stand himself before Yahweh. This word again here just tips us off that this is another day, a different day. No doubt, Job would have considered that first day the worst day of his life as he's lost everything. But chapter 2 begins with again, and we almost begin to tremble. What, well, what now? What's next? How, how can it get any worse? Verse 2, And Yahweh said to Satan, Where do you come from? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, From roaming about on the earth and rock, walking around on it. And if you're a good Bible reader, you're going to say, well, this is just this is a repeat of chapter one. It's the same thing. And actually, it's not. The English doesn't do a good job of showing us that what God is doing is actually getting more specific. In chapter one, it was a general question. Where, where are you coming from? But now what God is doing is saying, hey, where are you coming from now? He's pointing out that he knows that Satan went and did his dirty work. And now he's calling Satan to give an account. Tell me, what happened? How successful were you? Did you win? Did you get him to fall? Did you get him to falter? Where have you come from? That is what God is doing here to Satan. Verse 3, And Yahweh said to Satan, Have you set your heart upon my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity. So you incited me against him to swallow him up in vain. Again, he says, have you set your heart on 
Job. He is calling attention once again to Job. And so we see the, the repetition. What God is doing is he's rubbing it in. Satan doesn't come and say, my bad. I messed up. It didn't work. I was wrong. God says, were you able to touch him? Were you able to make him fall? He's still blameless. Not perfect, but blameless. He's still upright. He still fears God. He still respects me and reveres me and loves me. And he still holds fast his integrity. Now, still holds fast is an interesting phrase. It's pointing to Job's determination to persevere. Job is not deviating here. Instead, he takes hold of this hope that God is his all, his everything. Holding fast to his integrity speaks of his interior character. You see, to be blameless means that he's not going to falter. He's not going to go the wrong direction. But to do that consistently over the course of time, no matter what comes his way, well, now we're talking about a man of integrity, marked, characterized by a man who is full of integrity. See, he's taken an uppercut to the chin, and he remained blameless in the first trial. But the big question here is, well, what if we actually go beyond what he experienced? Will he still hold fast his integrity? And the scriptures say that Satan, he wants to swallow him up. But it says swallow him up in vain. And you can take that two ways. You can say, well, there's no reason to bring this calamity on him due to his sin or disobedience. So you, you wanted to swallow him up for no reason, for no purpose. He didn't do anything that deserves this. It's in vain. Or you can look at it and you can say, well, Satan's attempts to try to make Job fall will all be in vain. Because God is with Job. Both are true. His efforts to thwart God's plan was pointless. He was wrong the first time, and he's going to be wrong a second time. But that doesn't stop Satan. So look there at verse 4, and we see Satan's cynicism, skin for skin. Satan answered Yahweh and said, skin for skin. It's an unusual phrase, but Satan's not convinced. He's not convinced of Job's commitment to Yahweh. Sure, he said, naked I've come into the world, and naked I will return. But that's only because you didn't allow me to touch what is most precious to him, his health. His health. Job continues to worship you only because you've made him healthy. It's because he himself is still whole that he worships you. And so now what Satan does is he moves to Job's physical well-being. Skin for skin. What he's saying is, look, the first test, oh, that wasn't really legitimate. No, 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 no. You, 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 you still keep a hedge around him. You're not letting me touch him. And because of that, he will continue to worship you. Now, back in chapter 1 and verse 11, we saw that. It says, but send forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely 
curse you to his face. That didn't work. Satan did stretch forth his hand and Job, what did he do? He worshiped. But now he says in 2.5, however, send forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. And now, and then he will curse you to your face. Remember we said God only sends what is good, what is appropriate. Satan wants God to act in a way that is inconsistent with his character. And once again, we see Satan's deplorable accusation. He just doesn't really love you. He doesn't really want you. He wants his health. He wants to be whole. He wants to be happy. And that is the only reason why he worships. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. What Satan is saying is, look, his life is more precious to him than his possessions and his property and his prosperity and even his posterity. Do you understand what Satan is saying here? He really doesn't even care about those things. It doesn't matter that all of his kids are dead. He only worships you because he's healthy. That's what Satan's driving at. The audacity of Satan. He's telling God, you are stupid. You're naive. You don't know better. I know better. And I know if he touches body, he's going to stop giving you the honor that you deserve. Touch his flesh. Touch his bone. So what does God say? Verse 6. Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. And God has to give a restriction because you know what Satan would do if he didn't say that? He'd go and kill him because that's who he is. He is a murderer, he is a liar, and he's been that way from the very beginning. He wants to destroy us. And here, in verse 7, we get a glimpse of his utter cruelty. Look there at verse 7. Then Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh and struck Job with terrible boils from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. And here we have to ask the question, boils, is this, is this the worst that Satan could do? Of all the things that he could afflict Job with, was this his very best? And I would just say that, of course, he has reached into his bag and tried to bring his very worst. This is his one chance to one-up God, so you better believe that he brought his all. Now, the speculation here about what kind of disease this was that inflicted Job, it's, it's endless. You can read pages and pages about what it was. Is this elephantitis? Is it leprosy? Is it something else? There's really just too many conditions to list. But what I will point out is this, that these are terrible boils from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. And that just doesn't communicate that the boils were all over his body. What it's telling us is that every square inch of his body was in absolute excruciating pain. There's no comfort, no position you can get in to feel comfortable to relieve yourself. You can't stand up. You can't lie down. You can't get in the fetal position because everything is going to hurt. 
In addition to the unbearable pain of boils was everything else that came along with that pain. In Job chapter 2 and 8, we see that there's intense itching, that he is taking pot shirts to scrape himself. In 2.12, we learn that there's a deformity that he's not even recognizable to his friends. And he lifts up his voice, or they lift up their voice and weep because he looks so deformed. There's not only that, but there's sleeplessness. In Job 7.4, Job says, If I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the twilight continues, and I'm saturated with tossing until dawn. And you know, especially you students, when you don't get any sleep, it's not good for you. He is in pain. He can't get any rest. Sometimes when I have a headache, I go to sleep, I wake up, it's gone. Praise the Lord. For Job, there is no waking up and it's gone. Not only that, but in 7.5, we learn that he had worm-infested, pus-filled, erupting sores. My flesh is clothed with worms and the crust of dirt. My skin scabs over and flows out again. What a disgusting picture. Not only that, but he has nightmares. Verse 14 of chapter 7, you frighten me with dreams and terrify me by visions. Not only that, but he's suicidal. Job 7.15, so that my soul would choose suffocation, death rather than my pains. Yeah, I mean, you have to get to a very low point to say, I'd rather be suffocated than go on. There's depression in Job 10.1. My soul is loathed by my life. I will abandon all restraint in myself to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. He's constantly weeping. It says in Job 16.16, my face is flushed from weeping. I think all that weeping is causing his vision to go bad. In 16.16b, it says, and the shadow of death is on my eyelids. Not only that, but he has halitosis. You say, what's halitosis? That's stinky breath. His breath is putrid. In 1917, it says, my breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own brothers. On top of that, there's anorexia and emaciation. Job 19.20, my bones cling to my skin and my flesh. And all of that, Job says, I have no relief. Job 30, verse 17 At night, it pierces my bones within me, and my gnawing pains take no rest. It's not just poison ivy. It's not just chicken pox. It's not monkey pox. Oh, Satan threw something at him. In addition to that, in 3030, it says he has a fever. My bones burn with fever. And listen to this. It's not one week. It's not two weeks. It's not three weeks. It's not one month. This is several months that this is happening to this brother. It's no wonder. It says in verse 8, look there. He was sitting among the ashes. You say, what are the ashes? The ashes are the city dump. It's where all the trash goes, all the refuse goes and gets burned. This brother... Is all by himself with pot shirt share, what do they call them? Pot shirts, scraping himself by the garbage. Symbolically, what is communicating is this guy's trash. He's nothing. He's worthless. And you say, can it get any lower 
than this? And unfortunately, the answer is yes. And we see that with a sad sympathy in verse 9. No help from his helpmate. Verse 9, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Does that sound familiar? Curse God and die. Does that sound familiar? Now, most of our women are at the women's retreat, having a great time. They're being refreshed up at Mount Hermon. They're considering the, the beauty of the Lord and how to express laments. I am hoping that my wife comes back energized and refreshed, and I want my helpmate back. I love my wife and don't like to be apart from her. So ladies, if you're listening to this, don't be like Job's wife. I can't think of anything more depressing than to have the woman that you love, the one God has gifted to be a helpmate, turn on you like this. This is not how it's supposed to be. You see, sadly, Job's closest friend and helper becomes a tool for Satan to tempt him, to sin. I mean, after losing everyone, I'm sure he's trying to console himself with, at least I still have my wife. At least I have her. My stable support. But instead, she becomes Satan's spokesperson. Look at what she says. Do you still hold fast your integrity? It's exactly what Yahweh stuck in Satan's face. He still holds fast his integrity. Now Satan is speaking through his wife to try to get him to curse God. Satan has not only touched his health, but Satan is influencing his wife to get him to curse God. And what she says is, you shouldn't hold on to your integrity. You've got absolutely no reason to do so. Look at what he's done to you, Job. He's not for you. You see the subtlety of the serpents? Now, I want you to think with me for a second. Because I struggled with that. I wrestled with this. Because a big part of me wants to just go after Job's wife. What a horrible woman. What a worthless wife. But then I have to pause. She lost everything too. She suffered right along with him. Job's wealth was her wealth. Job's business, her business. All of Job's finances, fame, and family were shared with her. She gave birth to those 10 children. She is a hurting and sad and frustrated and confused woman. And she doesn't understand what's going on here. How can you hold on to your integrity? And that word integrity just means wholeness. Do you still hold on to this wholehearted love for God after he's, what he's done to us? Do you still fear him and respect him and trust him and, and treasure him? How could you do that after what he's done to us? 
What good reason do we have for all this pain, Job? You're over here scraping these nasty boils with potsherds. How can you bear to put up with a God that has treated us in this way? I want to be slow with my judgment of her. Because it seems like the first round of suffering she endured with him. She doesn't say anything negative after losing all of her possessions, after the property is gone and her precious children. But after the hedge was removed by God and Job lost his health, it pushed her over the edge. What's the point of being blameless if it's not going to bring about God's blessing? That's the big question. So why don't you just curse God and die? Now remember, said last week, that Hebrew word is actually barak. It's the word for bless. She's not encouraging Job to raise his middle finger up in the air and start yelling obscenities at God. It's actually worse than that. The statement is seeping with sarcasm. So listen to it this way. After all that God has sent you, are you going to continue to bless God? Go ahead. Keep on blessing God. And then die. What she's saying is, forget about God. He's worthless. Well, what's Job's response? Look there at verse 10. But he said to her, You speak as one of the wickedly foolish women speaks. Now what I want you to notice with Job's response, his reaction to this, is that he doesn't say a number of things. He doesn't call her a fool. He doesn't say she's wicked. There's no angry outburst or attack on her. He simply speaks the truth and gives her what I think is a gentle rebuke. I imagine him in a very controlled and calm manner saying, but wife, you're speaking at this moment foolishly. This isn't characteristic of you, but right now, when we're hit hard and when we're in our low place, you're talking like someone who doesn't truly know God. You see, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But how much worse is it for someone who knows God but believes that he deserves to be cursed? She believed in that moment that God was doing Job wrong. She believed in this divine retribution principle that Job deserved way better than what God was giving him. After all, he's, he's, he's blameless, but this is all backwards. If he's blameless, then why isn't he receiving blessing? God is betraying my husband, and it seems all wrong to her. Listen, I resonate with Job's wife. I resonate with Job's wife because in my own moments of weakness and my own lapses of faith, I forget about God and I'm just focused on myself. And I fall into the pit of a pity party where that's all I'm thinking about. I'm not thinking about his glory. I'm not thinking about his promises. I'm not thinking about Christ on the cross. I'm thinking about why is my Achilles torn? 
Why now? Why am I sick? Why can I not afford a home? And on and on it goes. So I, I resonate with her. I understand her. Oh, how we need God's mercy and grace to keep us from falling into self-pity. We'll look at the rest of Job's response. He doesn't just rebuke her. He corrects her. Verse 10, Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept calamity? And what Job does here is he makes his own rhetorical statement. First, he acknowledges that God has given him so much. He has been the continual recipient of God's blessing, and so he acknowledges that. His business was bountiful. His family flourishing. His health was happy. He's acknowledging God has been so good to me. But he also recognizes that even his suffering is actually a gift. Even his suffering and difficulty has come from the hand of God. Look, I I read the prayer request. I know what is going on with you. Life has been challenging for many of you. It has been a hard nine months. It has been a hard nine years. Are you hoping in God? Trusting in God? Believing that even though it doesn't seem like there's blessing, that He is still for you and loves you. And every little ounce of suffering, every bad diagnosis, every pain is actually for your good. That He's revealing Himself in ways that you would not know and experience apart from that suffering. So Satan attacks Job's health. He hisses in the ear of Job's helpmate. And now he hands Job three unhelpful homies. Look at verse 11. Then Job's three friends heard of all this calamity that had come upon him. So they came, each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. Now these aren't Israelites, they're probably Edomites, Moabites, which is already bad news for Job. But it starts off well, because it says they heard, they came, and they made an appointment to come together. I mean, that's what you expect friends to do, right? To to come to your aid. But I want you to ask the question, as you continue to read this, Are these truly friends? I think that's what we should be asking. Are these real friends? Well, notice that the text says that they came from their place, which means that they didn't live down the street. They're not close by. Job's health issues have hit the headlines. People are aware. The news has spread far and wide. And it's going to take them a while to communicate with one another, to coordinate, and then to commute all the way to visit with Job And all while poor Job is by himself. I just want to stress that, that he is by himself, sitting next to the trash with no company. But then his three friends arrive. 
We know that Job had four friends, but we're only introduced to three of them here. Elihu, who is the youngest and probably the wisest of them all, he doesn't step on the scene until Job 32. But in the meantime, these three friends come with every intention to comfort Job in his suffering. And the text says that they made an appointment together to come. And why do they come? To console and comfort him. But like Mrs. Job, they're actually doing the devil's work. Rather than being a comfort, their presence proves to be absolutely pitiful. They plunge Job into greater depths of despair. Their quote-unquote wise counsel pushes Job, not just from physical torment, but now he's got to deal with the emotional torment and the spiritual torment from these ungodly, unwise biblical counselors. Look at how they respond to Job's predicament. It, It appears honorable, verse 12. Then they lifted up their eyes at a distance and they didn't recognize him. And they lifted up their voices and wept and each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. I used to think when I read this, wow, these guys really love Job. I mean, look, look, at, the, look at the mourning that's going on here. But Dr. Abner Chow has convinced me otherwise. He suggests that rather than being a help to them, to Job, they're actually disassociating themselves from him. You know, I think about what happens when someone suffers. If you've been called to a home when mom dies or child dies, I've been to several homes. You you can be in hysterics. You can weep and wail. But in those moments, you know what the best thing to do is? Just sit down and shut up. I remember when Junior lost his mom. She was in the bathroom, had a stroke, like that, she died. Got a phone call, Jess and I rush on over there at night. We're sitting in his living room. There's probably about 15 people in a circle. And I'm watching my brother weep that his mom just died. And Pastor Eric Tonis, who's preaching this pulpit, was there. And I'm thinking, say something. Open up the Bible. Preach a sermon. Give, give us something. And Eric just sat there for hours with his arm wrapped around Junior, crying with him. And I realized in those moments, the best thing to do, the best comfort that you can provide is just weeping with someone. They don't do that here. I think it's theatrics. It's commotion. But verse 13 says, Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. And it's in this moment of silence for seven days where they probably do the most comforting and consoling for Job. Well, we come to the end of chapter 2. And we have to ask this question once again. The question is this, why did Job go through all this suffering? Here's the answer. Job is put to the test to prove something. To prove what is not true about God and our relationship to him. Job proves that God's children don't just fear God for the gifts that God gives. You see, Satan believed that Job's motivation was extrinsic. 
that he only worshiped God for what he can get out of it. He thought that he feared God only for the benefits rather than the blessing of relationship. But he was dead wrong. Job had an intrinsic motivation. I want you to turn to a passage of Scripture in Daniel chapter 3. I want to show you a showdown in Daniel 3 where we see something very similar. Daniel chapter 3, and look there at verse 15. Nebuchadnezzar, filled with wrath at Daniel's friends because they refused to bow down to an idol, he says this in verse 15 of chapter 3. Now, if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn and the flute and the lyre and the trigon and the sultry and the bagpipe and all kinds of music, then you shall fall down and worship the image that I have made. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can save you out of my hands? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to respond to you with an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to save us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will save us out of your hand, O king. Verse 18, but if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods, and we will not worship the golden image that you have set up. That is intrinsic worship. We worship God because he's worthy. We worship God because he's worth it. We worship God because he's proved time and time again that he is good and he has been good to us in good and in calamity, in prosperity and in poverty. It doesn't matter. No matter what we go through, no matter what situation we're in, no matter what the circumstances, God is always good. That's why we worship him. And so therefore, we're never going to bow down. We're never going to curse God to his face. How could we when he has been so good to us. Church, let me ask you this. Do you think it's foolish to give up on God because he withholds gifts from you? Is God your treasure or is your treasure the passing and temporal things of this world? Do you value what he does, not just for you, but in you? You see, Job Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all the saints that we read about in Hebrews chapter 11, they all feared God for free. For free. We don't need God's stuff. We need God himself. You see, God proves to Satan and the rest of the world that Job does in fact fear God for God's sake alone. It is not God's stuff. It's not because God blesses with material wealth and good health. Listen, if you're a Christian here this morning, you need to hear this. If you're a non-Christian, you need to hear this, that God has given the Christian the greatest gift in the world, 
and that gift is himself. Time after time in the Old Testament, we see this preview, this beautiful U-shaped gospel. It's a wonderful theological storyline that runs all throughout the biblical narratives. Job starts off blessed. He's a blessed man. And then he has a dramatic and tragic fall, but then he's restored and lifted up higher than he ever was before. We see the same thing with Joseph. Joseph, the beloved son of Jacob, he was treasured and honored and he had a coat to prove it. And then what happens? He gets sold and bitterness and jealousy and envy take him all the way down to the depths of prison. And then what happens to Joseph? He's restored. What does that sound like? Jesus in heaven, in glory, in perfect fellowship with the Father, with the Spirit, receiving worship from all the angels. And yet he leaves that and comes down to the earth. He becomes a man, and then he becomes a servant, and he becomes a slave. And it says in Philippians 2 that even to the point of death. But what happens? He doesn't stay in the grave. He's shot up in glory, in resurrection. Jesus is Yahweh's suffering servant. Job is meant to point us to Jesus. That is what Job is doing. Mark Dever makes this wonderful connection to Christ. He says this, Job was legendary for his righteousness. He's mentioned centuries later by Ezekiel as an example of the one who is righteous. But even in his righteousness, he could not even save another single person by his own righteousness. But one who was to come was righteous and was himself completely without sin. He said, Job feared God and shunned evil, but one was to come that did whatever his heavenly father willed. Job lost all of his earthly possessions, but one was to come who would forsake the very glories of heaven itself for you and me. Job bore his suffering well, but one would come who planned his own suffering to redeem us. Righteous Job suffered without cursing God. The one who was to come became a curse by God for us. Job was afflicted with painful sores. The one who was to come was considered stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. God kept Satan from taking Job's life, but the one who was to come taught that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Job's life was preserved. Jesus' life was spent even to death, death on a cross. You see, Job pointed to Jesus in all this, but he was exceeded by Jesus. Where Job knew grief, Jesus knew unique grief. Where Job knew agony, Jesus knew even greater agony. And then he says, do you see how the obedience and suffering of Job point to the obedience and suffering of Christ? Listen, church, suffering, trial, 
heartbreak, it's going to come your way. It's a part of this fallen world. But more important than knowing that suffering will come is knowing who you'll turn to when that suffering comes. Let's pray. Well, Lord, once again, we're humbled, challenged, confronted with truth. Father, we're thankful for your word, for the power of your word, the promises of your word, the purity of your word. Father, if it were not for your word, we would not be here. If it were not for your word, we would not be saved. If it were not for your word, we would have no ability to withstand the temptations of the enemy, but we ourselves would curse God and we would die. But we thank you that your word is powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. It's able to discern the thoughts and intents of our heart. We pray, God, that you would expose our sinfulness, expose our lack of faith, expose, God, our faulty understanding of who you are and how you work. Lord, we want to be faithful. We want to believe the words that we sing. On Christ, the solid rock we stand. Lord, we don't want to falter in unbelief. I think of Job and how he looked and longed for a Savior that would come and deliver him. He said, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will rise up over the dust of this world, even after my skin is destroyed, Yet from my flesh I shall behold God, whom I myself shall behold, and who my eyes will see, and not another. O Lord, Job looked ahead to Jesus, and we have, on this side of the cross, a better view. And so I pray that you would help us to be resolved, to cling to Christ, to draw near to him, even in the midst of suffering, because we have nowhere else to turn but our all-sufficient, sympathetic Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen.